Well, good morning. I told Ricky we could play Waymaker every single song, every singer set for the rest of my life, and I'd be satisfied. So thank you, Ricky, for leading us in that. That was awesome. We're continuing our Prosper the City series this morning. So the very first week, we looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we found that in spite of that tragedy, in spite of the wickedness and the evil that we find there, God was faithful to Abraham in spite of that, wasn't he? And then last week, Dr. Edens shared with us a story about Joseph and how even though all of these things went against him, God used his giftedness in Egypt to become second in command in all of Egypt. This morning, if you want to turn your Bible, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. At this point in the history of Israel, Moses has just passed away, and the Israelites are looking for a new leader. And God has appointed Joshua to take his place. And the very first thing that Joshua had to do, in addition to gathering the troops and getting them all ready for battle, was to go into a place called Jericho and conquer that city. And that's where we are today, this morning in Joshua chapter 2. The city of Jericho was the most powerful city in the day, standing at 800 feet below sea level. And to this day, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities, standing at over 10,000 years old. And when we get to this passage in Joshua chapter 2, we are introduced to a character And her name is Rahab. And today we're going to see what it means to have courage in the city. So if you will, Joshua chapter 2. We're going to read the entire chapter together. It will also be up on the screen as well if you'd like to follow along there. Or, of course, I know many of you have it on your phone as well. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go View the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate to the city was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted 
And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I want you to see this morning four observations that I find in this text. The first one, I want you to see the courage of Rahab. Now, when we get to a text like this, and many texts like it in the Old Testament, one of the first things we want to do is ask all of these questions. Why do the spies go to Rahab? Why is she so willing to help them? Why even mention that she is a prostitute? These are all great questions, and I don't have any of those answers for you. But what I want you to realize is when you get to passages like that in the Old Testament, remember They're not written to satisfy our curiosity. They're written to tell the story of God at work among his people. And then in the New Testament, why do we have this gap from the age of 12 to the age of 30 where we know nothing about Jesus? I would love to know what he did as a teenager, what he ate for breakfast every morning, what he had for lunch. Those would be awesome details just to know. But you see, the gospel writers are not really concerned about that, are they? They're concerned about making sure everybody knows that Jesus is the Son of God. So those details that would be awesome for us to have to satisfy our curiosity are not really 
why the Bible was written. But we do see Rahab here having a tremendous amount of courage because as she hides the men, the king of Jericho comes to her and he point blank asks her, where are these men? And without missing a beat, she says, I don't know. Why don't you go check out beyond the gate? I think they came through here and now they're gone, so I'm not sure. This was big. The king of Jericho could have done whatever he wanted with Rahab. The fact that she was willing to protect these Israelite spies shows how much courage she had. It could have cost her her life. It could have damaged her relationships with friends and families. I'm sure they were questioning, why are you even wanting to help these men? They have nothing to do with us, and yet you're sticking your neck out for them. It took a tremendous amount of courage. Now, I know this passage in Joshua chapter 2 brings with it this ethical dilemma. Is God really blessing Rahab lying? I know you're all thinking it. Rahab lies here. What do we do with passages like this where we see people doing apparently immoral things and yet God blessing it? It's another great question. And I do have an answer for you. You see, when we move into the New Testament, multiple times we see Rahab mentioned as a hero of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11, James chapter 2, Rahab is lifted up as a hero for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ to follow. That would not be the case if what she was doing here in Joshua chapter 2 was inappropriate or wrong. But throughout the history of Israel, we see God using people to accomplish his purpose, even though on face value it looks like what they're doing is incorrect. It took tremendous courage for Rahab to step up for a group of people that she did not identify with. She was a Canaanite, and yet she stands up for these Israelite spies. It takes incredible courage, friends, for you and me as believers in Jesus Christ in the world that we live in, to take a stand for what we believe in. Robert Bella, the great sociologist, wrote a book many years ago called Habits of the Heart. And in that book, he lays out the worldview that many people in America have today. And it's called Expressive Individualism. And I want to read for you and define for you what that means for you and I. Because you need to understand that when you talk with people in your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, many of them have this mentality. Many of us have this mentality. Here's what he says in his book. If I can turn to the right page. Here we go. We believe in the dignity, indeed the sacredness of the individual. Anything that would violate our right to think for ourselves, judge for ourselves, make our own decisions, live our lives as we see fit, is not only morally wrong, it is sacrilegious. Our highest and noblest aspirations, not only for ourselves, but for those we care about, for our society, and for the world, are closely linked to our individualism. What I want you to see is that the phrase, you do you, and whatever makes you happy, win the day in our culture. 
But you have to realize that that is so counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That goes against everything the world tells us to do. We lay down our lives for other people. We submit to the authority of Jesus. We don't do what makes us happy. We do what is obedient to Jesus. And it's hard. It's extremely hard. So parents, grandparents, parents-to-be, please hear me. Do not train your children to think that I need to do whatever makes me happy. Do what God calls you to do. This is not a popular message. And myself, I have been guilty of saying, do what makes you happy. But the more we study Jesus, the more we see it is not about personal individualism, personal happiness. It's about submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is difficult in our day. It's difficult to stand up for what you know is right when everyone in the culture around you tells you that your beliefs are out of step with reality. You know, I love Jesus' illustration in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the very first illustrations he has when he talks about salt and light. And everybody knows it. What is salt? It is both a preservative to prevent the meat from spoiling, and it also enhances the flavor. So what Jesus is telling us is, as a Christian, we are to both preserve the culture and enhance the culture in which you live. And that's important, and we hear that. But here's the most important part of that verse, in my opinion. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And here's the kicker. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is Jesus saying? In addition to the fact that we're called to be preservers of the culture and enhance the culture, we can only do that if we remain salt. If the salt loses its saltiness, we are no good to anybody. So as believers in Jesus Christ, if we do not embrace the qualities that make us different from the culture then we are no good to anybody. I spent a season of my life trying so hard to be relevant to non-believers. But what I realized, and what I still realize, is that in my quest to become the kind of person that Christians and non-Christians don't want to be or want to be around, if I don't keep the qualities that actually make me a believer in Christ, then I'm not helping anybody. So we have to maintain our distinctiveness. Now, we don't beat people over the head with the Bible. We don't judge them. Paul's very clear that we are not to judge those outside of the church. But we have to be able to remain distinct from the culture around us. If we don't, then what would they want from us? And Rahab, she stands apart here. Her entire nation doesn't understand why in the world you want to protect these Israelite spies. And she does it. You know, we don't transform the culture 
by blending in. We transform the culture by standing out. The second thing you see here is that the stories of God change people. When Rahab tells the spies that the people in Jericho have heard about what God is doing, they have heard the stories of Moses delivering the Israelites across the Red Sea. They have heard the stories of the Israelite armies dominating the Amorites. And she uses the phrase, their hearts melted when they heard these stories. But actually, what that means is that they were seized with anxiety. You see, the people of Jericho, they didn't convert to follow the God of Israel. No, they were fearful of what he might do. They were seized with anxiety. But in Rahab's situation, we have something different. Not only was she seized with anxiety, but she is converted. Because she has this confession that we see in chapter 2, where she says, The God of Israel is the God in the heavens above and on the earth below. What she is saying is different from everyone else around her. You see, they were wanting God to come in and just do whatever he needed to do so he didn't strike them dead. They were scared. They had a healthy respect and fear for the God of Israel. How many people do you know that have a healthy respect and fear of God, but they're not willing to confess that he's the Lord of heaven and earth? But yet we see Rahab doing this here. The stories that the people of Jericho heard about the God of Israel changed her heart. Friends, the stories of God working in your life can change people's hearts. Don't underestimate God's power at work in your life. Share the ways that God has worked and provided for you. Many of you probably have the Bible app on your phone. The YouVersion Bible app. Just this past year in 2017, they gathered Bible translators from all these different organizations And they have a goal that by the year 2033, 99.9% of the world's population will have access to the New Testament. For the first time in the history of the world, we have more people who have translations of the New Testament in their own languages than ever before. Over 2 billion people now have access to the New Testament. We only have a little under 2,000 languages where the Bible has not been translated into the New Testament. And by the grace of God, if we are alive in 2033, we will get to see 99.9% of the world have access to the words of Jesus in written form. So that every tongue, tribe, nation, and people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That could be a reality within the next 15 years. This is huge news for the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we spend so much time and energy and resources translating the Bible, because we believe that the stories written in this book have the ability to change people's lives for all of eternity.
the stories of God changed Rahab's heart. One of the coolest things about the Old Testament, even though every Old Testament story is not about Jesus, they almost always point you to him. So I want you to see in the Rahab story the gospel. Notice that the spies in Rahab have this agreement. Rahab agrees to protect them. In return, Rahab wants protection for her and her family. Now the spies say, all right, we hear you, but if you spill the beans that we were here, then it's not worth anything anymore. This oath that we made between each other is no longer worth anything. Both parties had to keep their end of the bargain. But when we get to Jesus in the New Testament, what we see is there is no end of the bargain that you and I can keep. It's 100% what Jesus did on the cross for you and I. Yet again, another reminder that the Christian identity can never be achieved It can only be received. Whatever moral conduct you think is going to make you right before God, it will not make you right before God. You cannot earn favors with God. This contract between the spies and Rahab, they both had conditions that had to be met. You and I can never Meet the conditions that God requires of us. But Jesus did. So we simply accept him. And we receive his forgiveness. And we're offered eternal life. You notice earlier in this text that they tell us that Rahab's house is in the wall. It's not just that she lives in Jericho. Her house is actually built into the wall. Later on in Joshua chapter 6, and we all know the story, we learned it as children, that when the Israelites march around Jericho on the seventh time, the walls come tumbling down. Without a doubt, Rahab's family would have been destroyed in this accident because her house was built into the very wall that collapsed. And yet we see these Israelite spies going in and saving her from a physical death. The spies were her Savior. In the New Testament, Jesus saves all of us from a spiritual death. And then the coolest connection is tracing Rahab's family line. Rahab goes on to have a son whose name is Boaz. Boaz marries a lady named Ruth and has a son named Obed who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And we know in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, that Jesus is directly connected to David's line. So what does this mean? It means that in Jesus' line, the only person who lived a sinless, perfect life has a Canaanite pagan prostitute in his lineage. As a reminder to you and I that when you are in Christ, 
you are royalty. And that Jesus, whatever you've done in your past, in your present, or in your future, wipes it all away. What's interesting about Joshua 1, 2, and 3 is that you could remove Joshua chapter 2 completely. If you study the structure of the book, you could go from directly from the end of Joshua 1 to the beginning of Joshua 3, and it would work just fine. The flow would be fine. So why include this story in Joshua chapter 2? To remind us that God accomplishes his plan through imperfect, sinful, flawed people like you and me. You see, the story of Rahab should be an encouragement to all of us that if God is willing to work through somebody who is a non-Israelite, pagan, prostitute, to accomplish one of the greatest victories that we read about later on in Joshua chapter 6, when the Israelites destroy Jericho, she is one of the most famous people in all of Israel for what she did. So her profession as a prostitute is important. Because it's a reminder to you and I that we cannot accomplish anything in this world without God. Rahab had a life that according to the world's standards was not worth living. The lowest of lows in society. And yet Joshua sends these two Israelite spies directly to her to remind all of us that we are in constant need of God's grace and mercy. You know, we have this perception sometimes in the church that it is a place where we come and everything has to be put together. We have to dress up in our Sunday best, as we say, and put on this face And just let everybody know that I had a good week and that everything's going great. But what Rahab shows us here is that the church is actually a place where every Sunday we should be limping to get here. Beaten, bruised, battered, ashamed. Church should be the place where we are most transparent and willing to be most vulnerable. But yet... It's not, is it? Some Sundays we walk in here and we know we've had the worst possible week. And that's exactly why we gather together in here. To sing praises to God together and hear his word proclaimed. And then we are cast back out to be beaten, bruised, and battered again. And then we come back. The world needs to hear that the church is not a place where we have it all together. It is a place where we come to receive the forgiveness and the good news of Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson served as special counsel to Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, he's important for a number of reasons. Number one, he was a part of the Watergate 7, the most 
embarrassing political scandal that this country has most likely ever seen. And he was one of the people indicted for his behavior during the Watergate scandal. While this was going on, a friend of his gave him a book, the masterpiece by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. After reading that book, the Holy Spirit came upon Colson. He was convicted, and he became a follower of Christ. So much so that when he was ready to stand trial, he changed his verdict from not guilty to guilty because he didn't want to lie. He spent seven months in a federal prison. The first of the Watergate Seven to be indicted and prosecuted for their charges. Upon being released from prison, he started an organization called Prison Fellowship. To date, in over 120 countries around the world. The most extensive association of Christian ministries in the criminal justice system to date was started by this man. In 2012, he passed away at the age of 80. Rahab, Chuck Colson. We look at these two individuals, and I know what you're thinking. These people made huge impacts in the kingdom of God. But I don't want you to leave today thinking that the only way you have courage is if you do these incredibly big things for the kingdom of God. You see, I was reminded this week by my coworker that courage comes in all shapes and sizes. Courage for you might be you faithfully praying for that coworker every single day for the last 10 years, ministering to them, sharing the good news with them. That takes courage. Courage for you might be for the first time in years, you're going to turn your lights on on Halloween and give out candy and meet your neighbors. Maybe you're embarrassed because you don't know those that live around you. Have the courage to know them. Maybe you don't have the courage or the time to go out and feed people every single week or go into the prisons or go on Berber Street. But you know what takes courage? Faithfully praying where you are for those that do that. Do not leave today thinking that courage only happens when I do big things for God. Having courage in the city happens when whatever God has laid on your heart to do comes to fruition. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for the story of Rahab and what we learn that you can accomplish anything through us if we will put our trust and faith in you. God, give us courage with our family members, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, to let them know the greatest news possible.
God, we are in need of your grace and your mercy and your boldness. We cannot do this in our own power. We need your spirit empowering us to change the city around us. God, help us to transform the culture by standing out, not by blending in. God, I pray that this text would speak to our hearts, that your spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you for the ways that you love us and that you provide for us. God, you are a way maker. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.